Culture. I think that's welcome in Gaelic. I hope so, anyway. Welcome indeed to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 2. I'm Marion Jones, and this is the first proper episode of the City Breaks Edinburgh series, bringing you, I hope, all the history, cultural information, background and whatnot that you'd like to know if you're interested in Edinburgh, and particularly if you're planning a visit there. If you've heard some of my series from other countries, you'll know that I quite like to introduce and end with a little snippet of language from the country in question, even if I don't really speak it, and so I made an effort to find out how to say welcome in Gaelic. And I hope that if you speak that language, you're not too horrified by my attempts at pronouncing it. Falcha. I must add, I'm not totally confident about that. It's certainly not how it's spelt, but I did go a-googling and find an audio version, and I hope it's worked out. So, Edinburgh proper, where else to start but with the castle? That best-known view from almost anywhere in the city, that rather dark, brooding building that sits atop the hill, or rather lump of rock, at one end of the Royal Mile, and seems to keep watch over the whole city. It gets more than a million visitors a year, It's the UK's second most visited tourist attraction anywhere, second only to the Tower of London. So yes, it's absolutely a symbol of the city, and it's very much a tourist feature, but originally its purpose was neither of those two things. Its purpose was, quite simply, the defence of the city. And I found one John Taylor who, wait for it, walked from London to Edinburgh in the 17th century, and claimed that it was perhaps the strongest-looking fortress he'd seen anywhere, and he'd been around a bit. He had been entirely on foot to Germany, to Spain, to the Netherlands, and seen all manner of castles, but he still reckoned, writing in 1618, that for, quote, strength and situation, the castle in Edinburgh absolutely could not be bettered. He was a bit of a poet too, I think, because this is how he put it, quote, The castle on a lofty rock is so strongly grounded, bounded and founded, that by force of man it can never be confounded. The foundation and walls are unpenetrable, the rampiers impregnable, the bullocks invincible. No way but one to it is or can be possible to be made passable. So, is it really true that the enemy never made it inside the castle walls? Well, no, not entirely. And I'm going to take the first half of the episode to tell a few episodes of history from the castle's past. Stories, plots and intrigues, a couple of murders, some sieges, tales of capture and recapture. I think I'm going to go for the episodic approach because otherwise we'll get lost in the detail. And after that, I'm going to finish the episode off with a quick rundown of some of the main things to look out for should you go on a visit. It's pretty certain that there have been people living up on the top of the castle hill for at least 3,000 years, but I'm going to start in the 11th century, because that is when Edinburgh became a royal centre. And the first person I'd like to tell you about is Queen Margaret, or Saint Margaret as she later became. An interesting lady, closely connected with the castle, and indeed even today there is a building there in her memory. The oldest part of the castle, a tiny little chapel, called after her. So, Margaret fled to Scotland from England in 1066, escaping William the Conqueror and all the mayhem that he'd brought with him, and a few years after that, she married the King of Scotland, King Malcolm. 
She was absolutely renowned for her piety and her learning, and for the influence she had particularly on her husband, but actually on the court in general. Here is the historian Michael Fry in his book, Edinburgh, A History of the City, talking about Margaret. He tells us that highly unusually for the time, being female, she could read, a skill which her husband hadn't learnt, he being more of a full-on warrior type. And he goes on to explain the difference that this made to the court. Quote, she raised the life at his court far above its previous uncouth level, to a magnificence Scotland had never known before. Her humble piety impressed everyone. She prayed for hours on end. She was charitable. She fed the poor and washed their feet. She ordered humane treatment for English prisoners of war, enslaved to Lothian households. She took charge of nine orphans and saw to their schooling. She decreed for pilgrims a free passage across the Forth. And she saw to the building of a great priory at Dunfermline, where she and the king had wed, and where they were to be buried. She behaved altogether just as the medieval mind expected of someone both holy and royal. The story of what she said on her deathbed was related down the generations for centuries after she died. She was at the castle, gravely ill, when news came that her husband had just been killed, fighting the English in Northumberland, and she is said to have remarked, I thank thee, Lord, that thou givest me this agony to bear in my death hour. Three days later she died, and because the castle was under siege, her body had to be smuggled out and taken to Dunfermline to be buried. The chapel, dedicated to her and named after her, St Margaret's Chapel, was built in about 1130 by one of her sons, and 120 years after that, she was canonised by the Pope, Pope Innocent IV, becoming Scotland's only royal saint. And just as one further measure of the esteem in which she was held centuries after her death, 300 years after her canonisation, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a gilded shrine brought to the castle with Margaret's head inside it as a measure of protection for herself during childbirth. So, moving on to the 14th century, we're always going to have to grapple with the old disagreements, wars, problems between England and Scotland, and the reign of Edward I, King of England, seems a good place to start. Furious that Scotland had allied with France, and therefore become a much bigger threat to England, Edward sent an invasion force up north, and they managed to capture the castle, installing a garrison inside, so about 350 English troops inside the castle walls. You may already know that Edward I is known, amongst other things, as the Hammer of the Scots. And here is the historian Christopher McNabb in his book, A History of Edinburgh, explaining why that is. Quote, Edward set about crushing the symbols of Scottish identity, smashing up the Great Seal of Scotland, and moving the Stone of Destiny from Schoon down to Westminster. What Scotland needed now, more than anything else, was a hero. And yes, enter, as needed, several Scottish heroes. Robert the Bruce, for example, very well known. William Wallace, perhaps slightly less well known. And someone I hadn't actually heard of at all, but who's got a very heroic role to play in this story. And that's one Sir Thomas Randolph, Earl of Murray. And in fact, nephew of Robert the Bruce for he it was who managed to recapture Edinburgh Castle after 18 years of English rule up there. And the story of how he did it is one of cunning and daring do. 
a tale which definitely deserves retelling. Sir Randolph was keen to recapture the castle, just not quite sure how to go about it, until one night, one of his soldiers, who seems to go under the name of Just Francis, came to see him and outlined a plan. Francis explained that he had lived in the castle as a young man because his father worked there and had been very much in love with a lady who lived down in the city, whom he wasn't allowed to go out and see by day, so by night he managed to sneak out of the castle, clambering down the crag, unlikely as it sounds, taking a ladder with him so that when he returned he could carry the ladder back up and use it to get over the castle wall. He'd done this lots of times, knew the route really well, and was willing to guide the others up there. Sir Walter Scott was very taken with this story, and in fact he retold it in a book called Tales of a Grandfather. And here he is on what happened next. Quote, Randolph did not hesitate to attempt the adventure. He took with him only thirty men, you may be sure they were chosen for activity and courage, and came one dark night to the foot of the rock which they then began to ascend under the guidance of Francis, who went before them, upon his hands and feet, up one cliff, down another, and round another, where there was scarce room to support themselves. All the while these thirty men were obliged to follow in a line, one after the other, by a path that was fitter for a cat than a man. Scott goes on to describe how the men could hear the guards of the castle, up on top, how at one point, one of the guards threw a stone and called out, I see you well, and how, because all thirty men kept absolutely still and silent, the rest of the guards ignored this, and the infiltration attempt could continue. Here's Scott again. Quote, Randolph and his men got up and came in haste to the foot of the wall, which was not above twice a man's height in that place. They planted the ladders they'd brought, and Francis mounted first to show them the way. Sir Andrew Gray, a brave knight, followed him, and Randolph himself was the third man who got over. Then the rest followed. When once they were within the walls, there was not much to do, for the garrison were asleep and unarmed, excepting the watch, who was speedily destroyed. Thus was Edinburgh Castle taken in March 1313. Not long after that, the Scots won victory against the English at Bannockburn, making Robert the Bruce victorious and he decided that the castle should be destroyed, so that the English would never again be able to recapture it. This was done, except that on his orders, St Margaret's Chapel was left standing. Unfortunately, the English did recapture what was left of the castle. A few years later, they rebuilt it, and so, by 1341, another hero was required to recapture it for the Scots. Enter one Sir William Douglas, who also managed the seemingly impossible by a feat of bravery and cunning. Here's the castle's own guidebook explaining how it happened. Quote, a ship carrying provisions for the English garrison docked at Leith with 200 Scots masquerading as sailors and merchants. When they arrived at the castle with their consignment, the garrison eagerly lowered the drawbridge. The Scots dropped their wares, jamming the portcullis open, and overcame the guards. Douglas's main force swiftly overwhelmed the English garrison of more than a hundred men. This actually marked the beginning of quite a long phase when the Scots, and particularly the royal family, made the castle their residence. King David II reigned there from 1341, had the castle rebuilt, and settled back to reign. However, 
the absence of the English didn't mean that all was plain sailing, because there were plenty of unrest and plots amongst the Scots themselves, one clan against another, that sort of thing. And the most dramatic example, perhaps, is an incident known as the Black Dinner, which happened in 1440. I've seen it referred to as one of the most shameful episodes in the castle's history. I've also seen hints that it's grown a little in the telling and that perhaps some of the detail is legendary rather than actually true. However, it is quite a story and one which I would like to try and retell. So it concerns the Douglas family, who were powerful nobles in the 15th century, had rich estates, mighty castles represented in short a bit of a threat to the royal family. And that was a problem, because at this stage, 1440, the king was James II, who was actually only ten years old, and his protectors were suspicious of the Douglas family, to the point where they decided to do something about it. So they invited the Earl of Douglas, who was actually a sixteen-year-old lad, and his younger brother, to dinner. And they had what I saw described in one history book as treacherous intentions. The story of what happened was written up about a hundred years later by one David Hume, who was writing a biography of the Douglas family. So we need to remember it's a hundred years later, therefore possibly not totally accurate, and also possibly biased because of the author's connection with the Douglas family. So here's how he describes what happened that evening. Quote, At last, about the end of dinner, They compass him about with armed men, and present a bull's head before him on the board. The bull's head was in those days a token of death. The young nobleman, either understanding the sign as an ordinary thing, or astonished with it as an uncouth thing, upon the sight of the bull's head offering to rise, was laid hold of by their armed men in the king's presence, at the king's table, which should have been a sanctuary to him. And I'm afraid he goes on to explain how these men hustled the Earl of Douglas and his younger brother outside and executed them. Horrific, as David Hume goes on to explain. It was, he wrote, against duty, law, friendship, faith, honesty, humanity, hospitality, against nature, against humane society, against God's law, against man's law and the law of nature. And he claims, too, that the people of Edinburgh made it very clear afterwards that they, too, were horrified. Quote, It is sore that the people did abhor it, execrating the very place where it was done, in detestation of the fact. And there's a little poem written that many people felt shame on Edinburgh's behalf that such a dreadful act had happened there. It goes like this. Edinburgh Castle, Town and Tower God grant thou sink for sin, and that even for the black dinner Earl Douglas got therein. At the beginning of the 16th century, there were high hopes that England and Scotland may perhaps be reconciled with the wedding of James IV to Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's sister, which was to set the seal on something called the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. And in fact, there were reminders of this in the castle. In the Great Hall, for example, you will see carvings of both the Scottish thistle and the English rose up in the ceiling. It was James IV who had the Great Hall built, and he made sure that this wedding and all that was hoped to come from it would be remembered in its decoration. But, in fact, the 16th century turned out to be pretty turbulent. Only ten years later, James IV himself was killed 
fighting the English at Flodden Field. And then in the middle of the century came the rough wooing, as it was called, another episode of English violence against the Scots. It started with Henry VIII, who tried to marry his son Edward to the infant Queen Mary of Scots. The Scots didn't like this idea, and so Henry's reaction to that was to send an army north. And this is what he told them he wanted them to do. Quote, Put all to fire and sword. Steal everything you can from Edinburgh, then burn it and knock it down. Do what you can to knock down the castle and burn Holyrood House. Much violence ensued, but in the middle of it, the infant Mary was spirited away to France for her protection. She joined the French court. When she grew up, she married the Dauphin, so the king's oldest son, and was set for a life ruling until her husband died unexpectedly, and then back she came to Scotland, landing in the middle of the night at the port of Leith, and making straight for the castle, where she held a celebratory banquet in the castle's great hall. It was in the castle too, five years after that, that she gave birth to her son, the future James VI of Scotland and James I of England. Great celebrations followed, and in memory of all of this, just above the doorway, in Crown Square in the castle, which leads to the room where the baby was born, is a gilded panel still there today, with the initials M-A-H, M for Mary, and Henry for Henry Lord Darley, Mary's husband, and the date, the year of birth, 1566. Actually, I did come across a story of quite some gossip relating to this, saying that actually as soon as the baby was born, Darley began to question whether he indeed was the father, to which Mary apparently replied, quote, My Lord, here I protest unto God, and as I shall answer at the great day of judgment, this is your son, and no other man's son. Darley wasn't to be fully satisfied, and he refused to attend the baptism, thus further fueling suspicions about what had really happened. And, as the Castle Guidebook points out, this wasn't a story with a happy ending. Quote, Within fourteen months, Darley had been murdered, Mary deposed, and the infant James crowned king. Eventually, Mary was forced to abdicate. She fled to England, where, after a total of, I think it was, 19 years in prison, she was eventually put to death by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth. However, meanwhile at the castle, one Sir William Cacaldi was trying to hold the castle for Mary. He refused to leave. Queen Elizabeth sent a thousand soldiers and 300 cavalry up to Scotland to deal with the situation, and although at first it seemed as if the siege would be successful, in the end, the English forces were simply too strong. Here's Christopher McNabb in his book, A History of Edinburgh, explaining, quote, During a week's fighting, Edinburgh's defences were steadily battered down. On the 23rd of May, David's Tower collapsed, and this cut off one of the main water supplies running into the castle. Five days later, the besieging forces captured or poisoned all of the castle's remaining wells, and on the 28th of May, Kekaldi began to talk peace. The next day, a force of only 100 soldiers, plus wives and children, marched out of the castle in surrender, still defiantly waving banners. William Kekaldi, however, was hanged for treason two days later. As the 17th century opened, the two crowns were united. In 1603, James VI of Scotland was crowned James I of England. He hurriedly left for England to rule in London, promising to return frequently to Edinburgh, 
although in fact it was another 14 years until he next dropped by. The 17th century was another turbulent time at the castle, particularly because of something called the Covenanters' sieges. The Protestant dissenters in Edinburgh called on the king not to impose Catholic-influenced practices in Scotland in a document known as the National Covenant, and when their wishes weren't entirely adhered to, armed rebellion followed. In March 1639, they managed to trick their way into the castle. Their leader, General Alexander Leslie, arranged a meeting with one of the constables in the castle, and no sooner had he diverted his attention by talking than a bomb was planted and it successfully blew up the main gate. Leslie's troops rushed in, and 30 minutes later, there they were, besieging the castle. In fact, royalist troops fighting for Charles I managed to get them out, and the second time that the Covenanters tried to get into the castle, most of them were trapped and killed by royalist troops. You'd think all this would have turned all the Scots against Charles I, but no, in fact, some of them still supported him and were horrified when he himself was executed in 1649. Enter one Oliver Cromwell, who also occupied the castle, converted the Great Hall into barracks, and set up a garrison of his own men there. Also not popular, and so when Charles II was declared king, many Scots welcomed him enthusiastically, glad to have a king back on the throne and see the end of Cromwell's protectorate. But please don't think this didn't rumble on into the 18th century, because it certainly did. That was the century which saw not one but two Jacobite rebellions. So Scottish Catholics who wanted to see a Stuart and therefore Catholic king back on the throne and who particularly objected to the replacement of James VI by the Protestant William and Mary. The first rebellion in 1714 was triggered by the death of the last Stuart monarch, Queen Anne, who was replaced by her closest Protestant relative, George I. Please bear in mind that I think George I was something like the 50th candidate on the list, but he was the first one who wasn't Catholic. And as you may imagine, Scottish Catholics didn't think much of that. The first rebellion then, in 1715, saw some 8,000 Jacobites trying to stage a military takeover in Scotland. But to show the divisions in the country, Edinburgh stayed pretty faithful to the Crown and prepared to fight against the Jacobites. Citizens were trained, fortifications were strengthened, supplies were stockpiled, and in the end, Jacobites gave up. But that wasn't the end, because 30 years later, 1745, there was a second and much stronger Jacobite rebellion, led by someone you've almost certainly heard of, Bonnie Prince Charlie, also known as Prince Charles Edward Stuart, so the grandson of James II. He'd been in Europe all this time, waiting to seize a chance, and he eventually arrived in Scotland by boat, landed in the Hebrides, marched down towards Edinburgh, gathering support as he went, quite a lot of support actually, and when he got to Edinburgh, he settled himself into Holyrood Palace. But again, the castle remained loyal to the crown, the Jacobites were eventually defeated at the Battle of Culloden in 1746, and Bonnie Prince Charlie fled back to Europe. Something very exciting happened at the castle in the 19th century, and that was the discovery of the Scottish regalia, as they were called. So the crown, the sceptre and the sword of Scotland, which had been locked away in a chest and kept hidden at Edinburgh Castle in 1707, when the Act of Union between England and Scotland was signed, and of course the regalia were no longer needed. 
1817, the Prince Regent, the future George IV, decided they should be sought out. So he issued a warrant and asked people to open the room known as the Crown Room in the castle and search for them. And here, once again, we have a dramatic retelling by one Sir Walter Scott, who was actually present at the event. He describes the Crown Room for us on this day. The dust of a century was upon the floor, he wrote. The ashes of the last fire remained still in the chimney. And then he goes on to describe the exciting moment when the chest was wrenched open. He describes the onlookers, all thinking it was too good to be true. Surely they were in for disappointment. The chest sounded hollow when they beat on it with a hammer. And then he addresses the moment when the chest was opened. Quote, the joy was extreme when the ponderous lid of the chest being forced open at the expense of some time and labour, the regalia were discovered, lying at the bottom, covered with linen cloths, exactly as they had been left in the year 1707. The relics were passed from hand to hand and greeted with the affectionate reverence which emblems so venerable, restored to public view after the slumber of more than a hundred years, were so peculiarly calculated to excite. He describes how all the soldiers in the garrison shrieked with joy, how people ran out of the castle to tell the people assembled on the hill what had happened, and what rejoicing there was. It showed, he said, that, quote, the people of Scotland had lost nothing of that national enthusiasm, which formerly had displayed itself in grief for the loss of these emblematic honours, and now was expressed in joy for their recovery. The castle played different roles in the 20th century too, being a recruiting depot in World War I and also a place where some prisoners of war were kept. And after the war, it became a demobilisation centre for Scottish servicemen. In 1927, the Scottish National War Memorial was opened in one of the buildings in Crown Square, right at the heart of the castle. In World War II, it played yet another role, being the centre of operations for something called Operation Fortitude North, a plan to trick the Germans into thinking that we were about to invade Norway, when actually we were just about to carry out the Normandy landings on D-Day. And they went to some lengths to carry this through. Here's the guidebook. Colonel Rory MacLeod coordinated the subterfuge, broadcasting phony military radio traffic, printing bogus newspaper articles, and feeding information to double agents. So, when you go to see the castle today, you really should feel that history over centuries and centuries has unfolded there. In all these stories to which I've referred, and in so many others which I didn't find time and room for. As when you visit any major site, there are decisions to be made. There's lots to see. Are you going to pick through all of it in great detail? Would you perhaps like an idea of the highlights, which you definitely do want to see? and which you can add to, if time allows. I thought maybe that's the way to go. I did want to say that there are free guided tours operating from the castle, so that's one option. But in terms of which places would you seek out, I think I would start with the esplanade, so the entrance to the castle, the flat bit right at the top of the hill, just in front of the main gate. Because from there, you can look over the castle walls to the north, over Newtown, and to the Firth of Forth, or to the south over the old town, across to the Pentland Hills. Both gorgeous views. And there are lots of things to look at on the Esplanade itself. For example, memorials to Scottish soldiers, 
Colonel Kenneth Mackenzie, a Gordon's Highlander for 42 years, who fought in the Crimean War, the Indian Mutiny, went to China. There's a large tomb for one Ensign Charles Ewart, an absolute Scottish hero. The inscription on his tomb reads as follows. At Waterloo, as captain of the Royal North British Dragoons, he captured the standard of the French 45th Regiment, from which the Eagle Badge, now worn by the Royal Scots Greys, is derived. There are lots of other military memorials as well. There's a statue of Prince Frederick, Duke of York and Albany, who may have never visited Edinburgh, but after whom the Prince's Street, so the main street in Newtown, was named. It was named after two princes, in fact, the other one being Prince George, the future George IV. So the two of them were the oldest two sons of George III, the king at the time when Newtown was built, and Prince Frederick was his second son, the one whose defeat in Flanders led, I'm afraid, to much mockery and the rhyme, the grand old Duke of York. If you're not listening in the UK, you might not be familiar with him, but if the nursery rhyme is to be believed, he had 10,000 men and he marched them up to the top of the hill, then he marched them down again. One of the most moving memorials on the Esplanade is the drinking fountain, which was put up to commemorate people executed for witchcraft in the 15 and 1600s. Several hundred people, mainly women, who were strangled and then burned at the stake right here where the Esplanade now stands. I'll be telling some of their stories in an episode in a few weeks' time. The heart of the castle inside the main gate is definitely Crown Square, which has three main buildings clustered around it. One is the Royal Palace, which was the Stuart dynasty's official residence, where you can see the room where Mary Queen of Scots gave birth. One room in there contains the Scottish crown jewels, or the Honours of Scotland as they're called, the ones that were discovered and dusted off by Walter Scott and company. You can also see the Stone of Scone, that was the one stolen by Edward I and kept in Westminster Abbey in London till 1996, the 700th anniversary of its removal, at which point it was returned to Scotland. It was the throne on which all the early kings of Scotland were crowned. Also in Crown Square is the Great Hall, perhaps the most impressive room on the whole of the castle, built by James IV as a banqueting chamber, so you can stand in there and imagine the feasts for honoured guests which were held, picturing perhaps a roaring fire, tables piled high with food, music, I'm thinking pipes and harps. Feasts were held in there for all sorts of occasions. For example, when Parliament was going to sit at Holyrood or at the Tollbooth, people would meet here and feast before processing down the Royal Mile to where the Parliament was going to sit. It was in the Great Hall, too, that Mary Queen of Scots, newly arrived back in Scotland in 1561, brought her court on the very first day after she disembarked in Leith. They sat down for a noon dinner and then processed down the Royal Mile to Holyrood so that all the people of Edinburgh would know that she was back. And to celebrate, a booming gun salute was fired by the castle guns. This room became a barracks under Cromwell but in the 19th century, it was restored back to its former glory. The timber panelling, the stained glass windows, the medieval hammer bean roof, and the carvings to represent the marriage of James IV and his English bride, Mary Tudor, 
so there are Scottish lions and a thistle in James's initials, alongside a rose for Mary Tudor and fertility symbols. And on the third side of Crown Square is the building which is now the National War Memorial, set up in 1927. There's quite a church feel inside. There's an altar and there's a casket on it with inside the 150,000 names of Scottish soldiers killed in World War I. Do notice the stained glass windows because they're quite unusual with pictures representing World War I. There is a Hall of Honour with memorials for each of Scotland's 12 regiments and on the outside of the building, four sculptures to symbolise courage, peace, justice and mercy. Definitely, definitely pay a visit to St Margaret's Chapel, the oldest building in the castle, which has a very plain exterior but is absolutely beautiful inside. A little altar, a nave where some of the royal family worshipped from the 12th century onwards which lay unused for centuries but was restored in 1845, stained glass windows added in 1922, which include one representing St Margaret and another representing the patron saint of Scotland, St Andrew. There is also in the castle grounds a pet cemetery built in the 1840s where regimental mascots and soldiers' pet dogs have been buried. For example, Jess, who was a pet of the Royal Highlanders, that's the Black Watch, and died in 1881. Two last things to look out for. An enormous gun, known as Mons Meg, six tons worth, forged in Mons in Belgium in the 15th century, and sent as a gift to James II. It was used in battles, and it was also used to fire salutes, for example at the wedding of Mary Queen of Scots. It spent some time in London, but was brought back to Scotland in the 1820s, and, as the guidebook puts it, given a military escort back to the castle through cheering crowds, because the grand old lady had finally come home. And then, last of all, do make sure you see the one o'clock gun. If you don't see it, you'll very possibly hear it, because it is fired every day, except Sunday and I think Christmas Day and Good Friday, at bang on one o'clock. It started as a time check for people out at sea who perhaps wouldn't see a flag that was flown but would certainly hear the booming gun. As the guidebook describes, this is what happens. A little before 1pm, crowds gather and the district gunner appears in a distinctive dark blue uniform with red striped trousers. He or she consults a watch and at exactly the right moment fires the gun. Its report is heard throughout the city and well out over the Firth of Forth. There is so much more I could say, but I don't like to get too lost in the detail. I hope I've whetted your appetite for the castle. And I'm going to give the last word to the guidebook itself, which summarises some of the many, many reasons why it's so famous. Quote, Over many centuries, Edinburgh Castle has witnessed royal ceremonies, savage battles, medieval parliaments, lavish feasts, desperate sieges, grand parades, ruthless politics, raids by stealth, the birth of a king and the deaths of queens, jousting tournaments, troubled marriages, devout prayers and intensive military activity. I can only add, go see. Okay, so that's it for this week then. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I hope too that you'll join me next week for the episode on that other ancient bastion of Edinburgh at the other end of the Royal Mile, the Palace of Holyrood. It just remains for me to thank you very much for listening and to say goodbye. 
and I've managed to look up in Gaelic how to say thank you and goodbye. So, at the risk of not being very accurate, here goes. Tapa leave, agus marshin leave. <laughs>